And now a message from our sponsor. Hey everybody, it's Bootleg Captain, Captain Bootlegs here. Yeah. If you're like me, I bet you're enjoying this Toys, Toys on, on Tap, Tap podcast. Yeah, I am enjoying it, it's very nice. But did you know you can enjoy it more just by joining that Patreon? Oh, I did not know that. There are so many cool perks available on the Patreon for you. There's and also and Wow, that's really a lot of stuff if you ask Bootleg Captain. Captain I don't bootleg. understand. There were noises I couldn't hear with the person. So join today to support Toys on Tap podcast and Bootleg Art Toys. But if you're not in a position to join the Patreon, head on over to Apple iTunes and review and subscribe. That helps out the channel as well. Okay, I'll go rate it, I guess. And remember, listen to Toys, Toys on, on Tap. Captain Bootleg, the bootleg captain sent you. Why does he keep referring to himself in the third Can person? I stop with the stupid voice now? I'm not sure why you made me want to sound like a pirate. Oh, so that was a fake voice. Oh, yucko! I didn't realize it was just pretend voice. Oh, okay. Welcome back to Toys on Tap. We are exiting Designer Con. We are exiting week three of Understanding Bootlegs and jumping into week four. Yo, Yo, Dine, you're taking the reins. Where are we yeah, headed? We today? are, uh, yeah, we are back. We are tired. <laughs> we are, we are, we are missing. I mean, we is in the royal we. I don't want to claim yeah. that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was, like I said to you before we started recording, it was 87 degrees on Monday when I left LA, and yeah. on Tuesday morning, uh, it was snowing in Montreal. So That's the is, worst. Yeah, so uh, shock to the system, research accomplished, took the time to do this work. So, um, you know, we've, I always sort of like try to do a little bit of a recap from week to week, just to sort of show people like where we've been if they haven't listened to the other three. So Yeah, which one do you um, want to recap first? Uh, well, why don't we just go in order? So episode Great. one was really talking about the terminology and and sort of theories of ownership within culture in terms of how we copy ideas and who claims ownership over them and how that articulated itself through various facets of sort of bootleg toys, knockoff toys. And we talked about all this terminology. Yeah. So if you're interested in that kind of that kind of deep dive into like ideas or theories of ownership, um, the ethics around those things, uh, what we could call a moral economy, and sort of how we can kind of grapple with all these different terminal, all the terminology that different artists use to describe similar phenomena, or like how we use the same term to describe different phenomena. Like that was what we were trying to unpack. Yep. And then I really wanted to move into this idea of talking about sort of the emergence of intellectual property as we understand it in the 21st century by talking about the origins of it in the 20th century, vis-a-vis -vis Mickey Mouse and the Walt Disney Company and character, the origins of character licensing. So episode two was all about sort of the origins of Mickey, um, the sort of corporate origins of like licensing characters to other, to, to, to manufacturers who make goods, who put Mickey Mouse on it, how all of that kind of stuff worked. And then how artists and individuals in the world we're responding to that kind of sense of control by resisting the iconography of Mickey Mouse through different sort of culture jamming projects, including the Air Pirates Funniest Comic uh, and the Mouse Liberation Front. Next episode, which was episode three, we sort of talked about the same thing in light of Star Wars, but then we saw something else happening there that connects to where we're going today. So in episode three, there was this idea that Star Wars was so popular and was the foundation of what we consider to be a transmedia ecology for character licenses and intellectual property, meaning 
they inhabit multiple types of media simultaneously, film, television, comic books, toys, all the sort of merchandise that comes with that, right? We talked about crockpots and Ronald Reagan's space weapon platform and how Star Wars was really sort of this, this lightning rod moment in pop culture sort of franchising as we understand it that kind of reinvigorates this in the 1970s in through now, right? And so today what I wanted to do is I wanted to sort of expand that gaze out to a variety of other sort of practices that don't really have much to do with bootlegging per se, but this idea of like corporate culture and how corporate culture copies and the kinds of consequences from corporate cultural copying. Mm. Um, and so this is the idea that we talked about this a little bit with Star Wars with the, you know, a new hope comes out in 1977 and between 1977 and 1981 like <coughs> excuse me how many how many knockoff star wars movies were there oh my gosh right? and it looks so fun and and how smaller toy corporations were cashing in on the star wars phenomenon but making science fiction toys that were sort of star wars adjacent yeah same scale you know um like whether that was figures or vehicles and we didn't even get into like so much of what I could have talked about there because mm -hmm. it, that field is so vast. We talked about the Tomlin Raiders and Ideals uh, Night of Darkness and other sort of characters that look and feel like they could have been in Star Wars that were probably created to fool people's grandparents into buying them for Christmas mm -hmm. for kids who were into Star Wars, right? So we understand that knockoffs are already a big sort of part of like the industry, the entertainment and toy quote unquote industry. And it's an industrial practice. So I think that language holds uh, in this particular case. But I wanted to talk about other stories within that because there's a lot of different ways in which that kind of copying articulates itself that I find super interesting. And more importantly, I think some of the stories, these stories and the consequences of these stories, one in particular, actually bears a bit of weight and impact on bootleg toy artists um, in a very particular way. There's two parts of it, actually. Yeah. So before we get yeah. to uh, the stories today, two things that come up. Uh, one, my hope for these episodes is that you listen to them and not only like listen and fall in love with our lovely voices, but um, <laughs> that you will look these things up, right? Like something if art does nothing but inspire, then it's done its job. And so my hope for this podcast is that it's adjacent to that and that it inspires you to go look. And so one of the things I did today is um, I was listening to, I think you pronounce it Dead Mouse, the EDM techno yeah. guy. Yeah. And, at, and when I had just graduated college, there was a story where him and Disney were going head to head. At, oh, and yeah. it was... So I, and I had known that and they like Disney was pissed because they tried to claim about his mask and his ears and how he was uh, displaying it or doing whatever, but the way that they worded it was so maniacal and, and they said, I mean, like the, the, the real thing is they could have just said, oh, you know what, it looks too much like Mickey Mouse, shut that shit down. But what they said was, no, we just think people will get confused. No one's going to get confused. You're just hiding behind. Yeah, they're just trying to play it off as if they're not the big bad enemy and it irritated me and yeah. then uh, number two uh, since we're headed into more knockoff stuff I think like a shameless plug someone I got to work with recently Brian Heiler is writing a new book called uh, knockoff toys 
Yeah. Um, and it comes out in December or the pre-order come. I don't remember, but plaid stallions for sure needs to get a shout out here. And Oh, I, I fully intended on giving Brian his due credit in the, oh, in the appropriate sort of parts of this. So, yeah. yeah. So there are strategies within like, also like there are, there are like something I'm going to mention today along, along, along the way is a practice that aligns very much with the sort of aesthetics of the toys that he discusses in his book, Rack Toys. Yeah. Which is something called sticker or label slapping. Oh, I which love are it. Like, right, which are generic, generic sort of plastic toy products that get redecorated uh, with the, the like labels of new IP. Yeah. Um, and I'll talk about some early instances of that as well. What's the sound um, bite though? We got to decide the sound oh, bite before anything. Um, oh, when you hear something... When you hear, is it like uh, 1960s Batman? Holy something, Batman! We could do that. We could do. Um, oh, here's one. Let's use uh, because of some of the toys I'm going to talk about. Let's use the quote from Star Trek: The Original Series when Spock just goes, "Pure energy." Deal, deal. Yeah. When you hear pure energy, so if you hear pure this, energy. yeah. What is it, Spock? Pure <laughs> energy, Captain. Um, so uh, we are going to talk a little bit about Star Trek in a moment. But, yeah. um, you know, so this is like, yeah, this is like corporate tales of copying. Um, okay. I don't know. I don't know what, how else to frame it. I had a clever title earlier uh, that popped into my head and I forgot it. Yeah, uh, sleep as deprivation. As I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I wanted to start with probably what is the one of the most famous stories of copying in toy history. We're going to begin in the 1940s in Germany. So in the 1940s in Germany, right now, Abe is looking at pure energy. Um, some cartoon some yeah it's a single panel uh adult satirical cartoon strip uh that appeared in a tabloid in hamburg germany in the 1940s early night like sometime in the 1940s hamburg germany uh there was a tabloid called bildzitung or bildzitung my german is terrible i apologize for the pronunciation (laughs) to any german speakers out there um, or actually, I think it would be Zeitung because it's German, so it's Zeit. Anyway, um, this is a this is a comic strip called Lily, L I L L I, or Lily, and uh, Lily was a comic strip, an adult satirical comic strip about a quote high end sex worker named Lily. <laughs> yeah, that was a nice way to put that. Yeah. Um, right. So uh, most of the language around this is high end prostitute, but you know culturally sensitive terminology is yeah. sex worker. And I think that's appropriate. So, and it was, a, it was adult satire in much the same way that like later in the sixties sort of playboy was doing a, or fifties, sixties playboy was doing similar comics with a very similar character in the play, the playboy bunny girl mm-hmm. in the black bikini. So Lily is this, is this character that exists in this, this satirical comic strip. And now this Oh, I know who this is. Okay, so this, what you see right here, this is a novelty doll made in 1953 um, that the Bill the owners of this tabloid newspaper, because Lily was such a popular comic strip, they made a doll based on Lily. So you use, as a quick, you use the word novelty. Are you using that to describe that it wasn't mass produced, that it was short lived? Uh, a novelty toy is in gag gift. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, sorry. Thank, thank you for, yeah. So 
This was kind of a gag gift doll, and it was available to buy from places like bars, um, um, and like and like cigarette and tobacco vendors, and sort of adult like adult stores, right? Lingerie, whatever. Adult they had a stores. real specific market. Yeah, a real specific market. She was also apparently, uh, based on my research, um, and a lot of other people have done this, like credit to M.G. Lord's book, Forever Barbie, which outlines this very, very well. Mm -hmm. uh, there is another book by Jean Wayne Miller that I'm getting through right now that's very good. And I, I can just hold it up called Toy Wars. Love it. Uh, the epic struggle between G.I. Joe Barbie and the companies that make them, because these are also both in both cases, these are family-owned and operated companies that become giant, like sort of multinational corporations. We've heard that story before. Yeah, right? yeah. Like this is American 20th century industry, like leads is like these family-run businesses lead to these multinationals. Your Disney's, your Star Wars's, your yeah. Barbies, your Hasbro's, your Mattel's, everybody. Um, and since we're talking about Barbie with Mattel, I can tell you that. Uh, uh, Dustin, a.k.a. the Blockwatch Captain, a.k.a. Uh, co-proprietor of Earth to Kentucky, when we were in El Segundo uh, hanging out before Decon, um, having pancakes with Barbarian Rage, uh, we could see the Mattel corporate headquarters and we went and paid it a visit and took some photos in the lobby and stuff like that. So I should tell kind you. kind of interesting to connect that. Yeah. I found something that I was thinking about buying. I found a Teen Talk Barbie. I have not been able to find one. I found one on eBay and it's like 20 bucks. Yeah, they're pretty cheap. I'm actually doing the same thing. We should talk about that off air. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because we'll get the we'll get to Teen Talk, the Teen Talk Barbie thing again in depth, I think, in the last episode, because that's, yeah, yeah. that's the right place for it, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So so there's this, so you know, this it, Lily was also given out as like a gag gift at bachelor parties for like young, like, like like men who were about to become like married. Um, and often they were found dangling from rear view mirrors of cars <laughs> in the era, like kind of like, kind of like fuzzy dice or like, yeah. a, like a pine tree air freshener or whatever, right? So like this kind of joke novelty gift related to this comic strip character. Um, and so as the story goes, Ruth Handler, who's the co-founder of Mattel, along with her husband, forgive me, I can't, I don't have his name in front of me, but mm -hmm. it's again, family-owned business. The story goes that in the night, so the Lily, like the comic starts in the 1940s. By 1953, this doll is made. And sometime after the main, this doll is, is being circulated in the retail marketplace, as the story goes, Ruth Handler, who was already, Mattel was already making toys at a small scale at this point, um, goes on a business trip to Europe and sees the Lily doll in Germany. And then in 1959, at toy fair in New York City, Barbie debuts. Yeah. And so let us, so here's, here's a nice little cross-reference for um, artwork based on Lily and then early artwork based on Barbie. There are some pretty stark similarities in the- yeah. Pure energy. In the artwork, we'll get to those guys in a minute. Um, but also, here is a nice comparison between the two versions of the Lily doll and the original Barbie. Yeah, the original Barbie looks extremely close to the cartoon <laughs> rendering of Lily. Some would say extremely close. Others have said they actually made the mold for Barbie from Lily. Okay. So you can see it in the facial features, although it looks like Lily's 
forehead is taller. Uh-huh. That may also be because the rooted hair on the Barbie is brushed forward, right? So that can be an illusion created in the photograph. You would have to hold them side by side to really get a sense of it. But body proportions are identical. Um, you can even look at the shape of the hands is nearly identical. The shape of the legs is nearly identical. And so there is this, you know, and from what I've read, it's pretty clear that they were like, yes, we were heavily inspired by this, but we wanted, you know, obviously we are a children's toy company. We didn't want, we're not making a prostitute doll here. We are making a teenage fashion model. Yeah. So my first question, as we dive deep into Barbie, when they get to the fair, there's, there's gotta be a story of someone that comes from Europe, sees it and is like, oh my gosh, that's Lily. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that from what I can tell, I think that it was pretty like, you know, it, so here's here's something that we can consider. This is 1959. Yeah. Um, like transnational communication is not nearly. We interrupted this broadcast of Toys on Tap to bring you this. Meanwhile, in a galaxy of bootleg treasures. Dov2, we have a engine failure. We almost crash land on DKE Toy Planet. Oh my! We're doomed. Wait. Salvation! Hooray! We're saved to deal V2! Limited edition custom artist made action figures and DKE Toys! Check out www.dkatoys.com for a full catalog. Hooray for custom action figures! DKE! Where it would be as it is, as it is now. Like you can see the similarities between like objects instantly now, yeah. whereas it would take time for this to travel. And there were lawsuits. Okay. Um, there were lawsuits. I can't like speak to the outcomes of them, but it basically had to do with because of the way that international trademark patent and copyright law works is that basically the only place that they, this company would really be able to like hold um, Mattel legally accountable would have been in Germany proper and would, and then, you know, by extension later, like the EU, right? Okay. Uh, Again, I'm not a legal, legal expert. I'm more interested in sort of the cultural and moral economies of these things rather than the legal side of it. But it's important. The lawsuits are the way. Lawsuits are ways in which disagreements between um, between like large corporations happen. Whereas in our community, it's like people beef on Instagram. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, that, that's what we have access to. They have access to armies of lawyers who can litigate. And there, there are a couple of moments where I'll be talking about about the the legal stuff here that's right what's in what's really important with mattel and barbie that i want to before we cast forward to the next sort of story here is to talk about the business model that barbie brought to mattel so barbie is what maybe what we consider to consider to be in a particular way other than an early instance of a toy brand that really explodes that becomes a character after she's a toy um but more importantly the business model for Barbie at this particular moment is the inspiration for something else that I'm going to talk about. And that's this idea of the fashion doll as Barbie exists, right? Before that, the fashion doll was a thing, but it was generally speaking a paper doll set that you would buy. You would cut out your, you know, your doll in paper and then cut out all the clothes that were also in paper and then fold little paper tabs over and then you had your doll, your fashion dolls and they could change outfits. Mm-hmm. So what Barbie did is it took the paper doll fashion model and applied it to three-dimensional toys. Um, and that's significant and important because 
if you're making a doll, right, in the marketplace, you're only probably going to sell one doll to each girl. That's the first thing, right? Each young girl yeah. or or boy to be, but in this particular era, if we read the culture of the time, the intention was is that this was a, a fashion doll meant for young girls. Yeah. And so Barbie is the base platform that you would purchase. And then they would release like innumerable outfits inspired by contemporary fashion. Which is right? so smart. So yeah, so you buy a Barbie, but then you are buying all these, all these like, all these additional items, whether it's like purses and shoes and accessories, usually they came packed in an outfit. So you would get like a purse, a comb, some shoes, a dress, a yeah. hat maybe. And so that was the business model. The business model was we get them with the platform that is Barbie, and then we get them to kind of subscribe and keep coming back as fashion updates and we update the fashion. Um, interesting story about the, like sort of the labor practices around that is that the initial the initial Barbies were actually made in a factory in Japan and it was Japanese housewives made, making those outfits at home for money. So it was like kind of this precarious, weird labor situation too. Which yeah, is, we you know, like closing in on sweatshop status? Ish, ish, okay. except it's like a work from home sweatshop, right? But you gotta just like, just Japanese housewives making extra money by just sewing these tiny little outfits over yeah. and over and over and over and over again. Okay. Um, and, and we do know that like, one of the challenges if we're talking about ethical practices within corporations beyond all the copying stuff that I'm going to be talking about is, of course, the ways in which these things are produced, like industrially, the labor, like the labor issues and all of that kind of stuff. Most of this stuff that we consume is produced there. Um, and that's the nature of like globalized culture. And I don't have a solution to that problem. I just think it's worth that we always sort of keep that in mind. Right. Yeah. Like we're really lucky where we are being able to consume the things rather than being in the places where they make the things. Yep. So, so all of the, so this business model is really, really critical, right? Yes. Lily is Barbie is, is clearly some kind of copy from Lily, you know, to what extent, you know, there are different opinions on this. I'm of the mind that from what I've read, that it sounds like the first test shots that they made were made from a mold they made from that other doll. And then they sort of had to develop it because one of the things they did do is they developed the articulation in Barbie's hips and knees. Yeah. And that um, was such good artic articulation for the time. And changing the limbs from hard plastic to vinyl so that they would be flexible enough that you could put these other, these other outfits on them. Okay. So clearly, so clearly on an engineering level, they had to do things to this doll in order to make it a doll that was sort of durable and playable for young American girls in the 1950s, 1960s. Yeah. So this is this is kind of where we can start with this idea of, okay, so like Mattel's greatest success to date at this point is Barbie. And then later you can also even say that Mattel's Hot Wheels line is kind of also copied and, predic and based on the 164th scale of Lesney Toys Matchbox line which were, made, were cars that literally fit in a matchbox, right? Oh, okay. That's where the name matchbox comes from, if you think of. And now, actually, Mattel owns matchbox. I love that. So both brands, yeah, I don't love that. That's, that's corporate monopoly. But that's yeah. <laughs> so, so this business model is where I wanted to start with the sort of first tale of sort of intercompany copying, which is outlined in, I'm just going to scroll through these, uh, and I'll show you this. We'll start here which is outlined in that Toy Wars book to a certain extent. Um, 
But, you know, another family-owned company in Pawtucket, Rhode Island is Hasbro. And uh, the Toys That Made Us did a good job of talking about the original sort of creator of G.I. Joe who brings it to Hasbro and all that. So I'm not going to sort of, I'm not going to repeat that. But the idea here was to create a, a doll. Pure energy. I'm going to say doll. I'm sorry, friends. They're dolls. And, and I think this is a really good way to explain the origins of the action figure um, that boys could play with, too, without, without sort of being, you know, in a culture that would not have been very sort of like progressive or permissible in terms of boys playing with dolls and dressing them up. So what do you do? You create a doll that's basically the same size, that's a man, right? And you can see here with the patent drawing. So what the what the image that I'm showing right now is one of those wooden drawing mannequins, which is sort of the baseline inspiration for the articulation that goes into the original. I'm talking about GI Joe. Mm -hmm. So the origins of GI Joe in the 1960s, right? Barbie comes out in 59. GI Joe comes out in 64. And here are the original GI Joe figures and so one of the things that happens at hasbro is that we can't call them dolls how do we get around this and there's plenty of stories and the story has been recounted time and again hasbro is responsible for creating the term action figure is a way to market dolls to boys yep it's marketing lingo specifically meant to sort of unseat the kind of femininity or like feminine sort of uh, implications of the word doll in culture. So what's the difference between a doll? A doll is someone you, in an action figure. A doll is something you dress up. An action figure has agency, right? So G.I. Joe is a soldier figure that came in like Army, Navy, Marines. Uh, yeah, there's, a, there's one there that I'm not sure what it is. Uh, I think it's Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force. And then the one on the far right is actually the African-American version of G.I. Joe. So oh, okay. like Caucasian, you know, anyway. So each of these, each of these figures came in a box with sort of the uniform of their military branch with some base accessories, much like Barbie came with the dress that she was wearing and the shoes and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so what Hasbro did essentially other, you know, they took the business model of Barbie, they renamed it from a fashion doll to an action figure. And then they copied that business model because what is G.I. Joe, if not a platform for the exact same thing, except instead of contemporary fashion, it's different kinds of like military outfits, guns and accessories. Yeah. Right. Instead of a purse, maybe he comes with a Glock or a grenade or something. But the business model yeah. is the same. Well, I think um, it's crazy too. I mean, just looking at the dolls, um, I don't like the giant... Um, dog tag and also there are stories um that like because i know that the bigger in just customizing action figures and all that stuff the bigger the toy the more detail you can get in so having a what is this 12 inches so having a 12 inch doll means you can get some pretty detailed accessories so like the guns the tents the jeeps like all kinds of stuff you also have to think about, though, the fidelity of plastics manufacturing at the time, which means those details would not be as rich as we consider them to be today because of innovations in manufacturing. Yeah. Right. Uh, so it's the, the you know, the, they're still very basic. Like and then and then, you know, G.I. Joe's idea of innovating and iterating in the same way that Barbie came out with Barbies of different hair colors 
um, and different skin tones to sort of like have Barbie accessible to like people of other ethnicities. GI Joe kind of does the same, but then they also do that thing where they have like fuzzy beards and like okay. fuzzy hair and that kind of thing. But one of the key differences distinguishing GI Joe from Barbie was the hands. This was another really key feature of the action figure is the Kung Fu grip, which meant that G.I. <laughs> Joe could hold things. Barbie could not hold things. You could lock stuff into her hand, but it was like, you know, sort of straight open, like kind of like a like you were holding your hand in a V-shape. Yeah. Whereas G.I. Joe's hand is crooked in such a way that you can put accessories, guns, you know, knives, whatever in his hands and he could hold on to them. So the action figure was action figure as a term was supposed to sort of convey this kind of masculine agency and power in fantasy play for young boys through military figures right mm. and so gi joe is a smash hit as well like it kind of puts hasbro on the map in a way that they weren't on the map before and so as anything that is successful as we know and there are there's a i can't remember i think it's, the name is daisy or something there's a british doll that comes out shortly after barbie in the uk um, that is basically sort of a Barbie knockoff that becomes big in the UK. I just can't remember her name right okay. now. But one of the things I find really interesting about G.I. Joe and this tale of corporate copying as we continue through this story is that often when corporations see something being successful, we learn this with Star Wars, other companies want to get on the bandwagon and make some of that money and siphon, like, not necessarily to like fully compete and dominate the market, but it's like if that market is so big and that thing is selling so much, if we just make something and slice off a little bit of that, we're still golden and we're still doing well. Yeah. And the first major, and this is such an interesting story, the sort of first major figure to do this with GI Joe um, comes in the form of the fighting yank by Mego. Wait a minute. Um, is this the finger? Yes. Oh yeah. So this is amazing. Uh, this story to me is so amazing because it like, it's like talk about getting caught red handed or yeah. right, right handed as the case may be with this. <laughs> so one of the, for whatever reason, and there are rumors that it was done intentionally to catch like corporate copycats. Uh -huh. And there, and there are other stories that say, no, that wasn't the case. Uh, we fucked it up, but that led us to be able to sue people because we knew they were like directly lifting our work. So the story is, is that if you, any, any, anyone who's a collector um, probably knows that the right hand of G.I. Joe, his thumb is inverted, meaning the thumbnail and the knuckles are actually on the inside of his thumb and not the outside of his thumb. And that was either a manufacturing error, as this story goes, or as these rumors have suggested uh, that were never corroborated, that Hasbro did this on purpose so that they could catch people who were going to copy and reverse engineer their toys. Um, the Fighting Yank, coincidentally, his right hand, his thumb and his knuckles were on the inside of his thumb. Gotcha. Uh, Migo lost the lawsuit. Hasbro won the lawsuit. Migo sort of goes off to lick its wounds and then sort of returns you know, several years later with a scaled down sort of eight inch version of the toy that ends up being well known as like the Mego doll or the yeah. Mego action figure. But, but Mego like literally like pulled apart a G.I. Joe figure, made molds, 
and then started manufacturing the fighting yank and the fighting yank in this particular case yank meaning yankee fighting meaning soldier soldier toys of different military branches that came with different accessories that were available um yeah yeah so and then there's this other stuff that sort of happens where you get kind of like third parties who make generic non-branded doll like outfits that are compatible with these dolls as well that was also something that happened um but so like the Mego story is an interesting story even in i think the episode of the toys that made us where they're talking about gi joe like I think Marty Abrams at one point, there's an interview with him and he's just like, yeah, we kind of did that. Like he doesn't like, <laughs> he doesn't explicitly come out and say it, but he's kind of indicating that like, maybe we made a mistake there. Like, you know, that, that and, and that decision really kind of hurt Mego for quite some time. Yeah, I, I mean, I, are, I, you know, there are people who would probably know this history better than me, um, who could, who could provide more details. I'm just sort of skipping across to be like, this is a really interesting story about, this kind of copying that was happening in this particular moment in time. Yeah. And I'm, I'm big into like, I wish they would just live into it. You'd probably get more critical acclaim and like more like fame by just saying, yeah, at one point in our history, this is what we did. Here it is. Welcome. Just live into it. You screwed up. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like Mego is still what's, what's really interesting about Mego is that it's still a holdout as an independent company that I believe is still run by Marty Abrams. Um, yeah, because it, it and they've failed had a kind of back, right? It failed and came back, and they've had a resurgence in the past like number of years, where like you can find like new Mego toys, new licensed Mego toys on like Target shelves. I saw them when I was in when we were in Anaheim together. Last Weird. Um, yeah, and there's like Star Trek: The Next Generation, and so they're still doing that licensed work and sort of bringing back some of that sort of nostalgic feeling through through that work. So. Yeah. So Mego copies, essentially copies G.I. Joe, uses that as a model and then sort of like rejigs themselves in and around doing like superhero licenses a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, and that becomes really big for them. Like Batman, you know, they do a Batmobile, Batman, Robin, the Batcave, like play sets, all that stuff. It's sort of like Mego goes off in that like sort of comic book hero license direction and also picks up other licenses along the way and sort of keeps going for quite some time. What's interesting about the G.I. Joe thing and then and then Mego coming along is that Mattel ends up coming out with an action figure named Big Jim. Pure energy. Who's slightly smaller at 10 inches, but is essentially sort of copying the Barbie model, which is copying, like copying the G.I. Joe model, which is copying the Barbie model. So they're using the same business model for themselves. So okay. Big Jim and all of the characters in and around Big Jim, you know, another sort of like but not a military character, but like just this, like not generic, but like a sort of like masculine Doc Savage kind of uh, adventurer. And he has adventures and there's villains and heroes and all that stuff. And what's really interesting about that is that uh, Big Jim also, if you look at the, the sort of trajectory of the other figures that come out by Mattel later in the 70s, in the, in the 70s is that Big Jim himself ends up being copied by Mattel and sort of rejigged in several ways, including the Pulsar action figure, which was a science fiction figure, and even the Colonial Warrior figure um, that was the the like 10 inch figure that from Battlestar Galactica. They made a three and three quarter inch line, but they also made like a 10 inch Cylon and like Colonial Warrior from BSG. BSG we talked about last week as being kind of a knockout from Star Wars. The snake keeps eating its own tail all over the place here. Right? Yeah, just round and round. Round and round she goes. And so what's really interesting to me about Big Jim is that Big Jim comes out in the early 70s 
at a time, you know, this is this is the time when, like, if we looked at the culture in and around like American culture at this particular time and how it impacts the toy industry, is that increasingly GI Joe becomes less and less popular because of its association with the military yeah. and the military's association with the Vietnam War and people, you know, and and sort of all of the cultural exhaustion around the Vietnam War. So with the decline of the Vietnam or with the the decline of sort of this this kind of pro-military sentiment in American culture, particularly around the Vietnam War, G.I. Joe gets rebranded as the adventure team. And what do they become? They become a bunch of adventurers who are not military people, right? And so once again, <laughs> Barbie inspires G.I. Joe, inspires Big Jim, inspires G.I. Joe adventure team. Yeah, like, I think that those are those are really clear connections that we can make. And again, there are nitpicky details here that I'm sure other other collectors and members of the community can dispute me on, or or fill in the gaps for. And I am always happy to hear that if you want to if you want to DM me on Instagram because I'm really interested in this kind of stuff and this kind of information. This is just like preliminary research for my dissertation in and around like that weird relationship between Mattel and Hasbro. Yeah. Because there's another story I'm going to tell a little bit later that also relates to that. So that's kind of a timeline of the origins of the action figure through the fashion doll, right? I don't think you ever get to G.I. Joe without Barbie. I mean, maybe there's a world in which that just sort of spontaneously happens. But it's clear to me that there's a sphere of influence here that's pretty, like, like pretty strong. Yeah. It's like, well, we'll make the same version of Barbie, but for boys, and we'll just shift from fashion to action, right? Like, that's really the shift. Um, and so this is why I always say, sorry, everybody. Like, if you say they're not dolls, you're kind of wrong. Yeah. At least in the beginning, because it's all just marked, like, anybody who adheres to the term action figure over doll is really adhering to a corporate marketing tool that was created, like, 60 years ago, almost, yeah. like 55 years, 54, 53 years ago. Um, so for half a century, you know, um, and then of course, arguably the action figure becomes its own thing uh, and separate from the idea of the doll. I think with some of the stuff that we talked about um, in terms of the Star Wars and Fisher-Price Adventure people last, last week. Yeah. Um, and so, this is sort of like up to and including Big Jim, the big shift that happens after this is the introduction of that transmedia model that I talked about with Star Wars that was so influential, which then, you know, if we're talking about business models that get copied, gets copied by every comic book publisher, television producer, movie producer, and toy company, like internationally. Um, so the Star Wars media model, the comics, the movies, the TV shows, um, He-Man, um, Transformers, uh, you name it, G.I. Joe, G.I. Joe, G.I. Yeah. Joe comes, G.I. Joe comes back in a four inch scale in the 1980s, not long after they dis discontinued the 12 inch line one, because it's cheaper to produce this new sort of smaller rebranded line. Um, but two, also because that's the same scale as what be has become the dominant scale because of Star Wars. Yeah. Right? They could have just re-released like a 12 inch, you know, like figure line. But at the time, the price, 
because the business model was leaning towards this price point where figures were like like between one and three dollars because of Star Wars, because small less packaging, smaller figures, less production cost, et cetera, et cetera. Offshore manufacturing in China and Taiwan, which totally changes the game as well around this time. Um, and so even in the 1980s, G.I. Joe reemerges as a cartoon brand in a three and three quarter inch line, predominantly because of the model, the business model that's established by Star Wars. Like you have to think that the people at Hasbro were paying attention to Kenner's relationship yeah. with Star Wars, particularly because we also told the, the story last week about how like Mego, Mattel and Hasbro all turned down the Star Wars license. And they're like, how can we get some of that Star Wars money? Right. Right, so do we know why they turned it down in the was it just untested untried it was because at that particular point in time the logic in and around licensed work was that it needed to be generally speaking a television property mm-hmm. so that kids would have continual exposure to it so that exposure to the brand so that they would consistently buy the toys up until the emergence, we talked about the emergence of the the blockbuster movie through Spielberg and Lucas last week. The blockbuster movie changes the transmedia game, particularly around Star Wars, because Star Wars' impact is so like meteoric, you know, yeah. that it changes everything in the way that business is done. So before Star Wars is released, everyone's saying that's not how we do business, licensing movie properties is just not good business for a toy manufacturer because movies don't exist in the public consciousness long enough. Yeah. Star Wars changes that. Um, And then so even like Mattel comes along with He-Man and they kind of use the Star Wars model. They say, well, we need to do some transmedia work here. So there's a really early, like originally it was a comic book that because... Toys didn't, like, for example, G.I. Joe and Barbie, I mean, Barbie less so because over time, Barbie starts getting more and more of a story and there's storybooks and and stuff that come out in the 60s. But G.I. Joe is kind of this blank slate that a child can fill with signification, right? Like, there was no TV, there was no movies, like, explicitly, like, linked to the brand. These characters were sort of generic soldiers of different military branches. So the personalities and activity of these soldiers is sort of like comes from the child. Yeah. And it's it's like poured into the toy. Star Wars changes that and it roots the narrative and the branded storytelling of a narrative universe. Um, And so when G.I. Joe comes back, it's one of the reasons why all of a sudden these aren't generic soldiers anymore these are individual characters with individual personalities that go on adventures together, which is Star Wars, right? Like that's basically what happens there. And so He-Man's the same kind of story, except what they did because they were like, we need a story for He-Man is that that's why the He-Man, com- the He-Man figures came with mini comics. And then they oh, said, okay. okay. And then, you know, it's to root the child in the story of the character because if you can get kids to subscribe to a branded narrative universe, they're going to come back and keep consuming that branded narrative universe. This is the lesson from Star Wars and its transmedia yeah. sort of reach and scope, right? And, and then He-Man becomes a cartoon and then et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, and then it becomes a movie with Dolph Lundgren and then, it, you know, and like all these brands, they sort of have moments where they kind of like 
like the water recedes a little bit, but then the tide comes back in and there's new versions of this stuff, like that ebb and that flow, right? Um, yeah, especially like we also have the like nostalgic factor, right? Like I'm seeing a resurgence of mm-hmm. street sharks and gargoyle toys, like those yeah. made in the 90s, they're running back for some reason. I don't know what's going on. Uh, because those people are approaching middle age and are staring down the uh, the darkness of their own mortality and want to reconnect to their childhood. <laughs> I, said that, <laughs> I said that like a couple of weeks ago about this. I discovered toys as a toy maker in my middle age. Why? Yeah. I want to leave something behind that's not just, uh, you know, anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, but and but the reason is, is because these are like, you know, you said that thing about Star Wars being untested, right? Yeah. Star Wars, is He-Man... G.I. Joe, Transformers, oh boy, they've been tested. And even when these movies or these like toy lines reemerge, um, you know, and then disappear again, you can count on them coming back in a generation or two, right? And then you end up with this pan-generational like consumer market that you sell stuff to the parents who enjoyed it on the collector's side, but then you make new versions of this stuff for kids on the the kids toy side. So Mattel is doing this right now with Masters of the Universe Revelation on the one hand for adults, um, you know, arguably the behavior of some of those people after it came out, I I dare say they're not behaving like adults. Yeah. Um, But but, you know, like a month or two later, they released this new version of the Masters of the Universe cartoon that's like contemporary CG. Um, It's very cutesy in in a sort of Paw Patrol kind of way. And they even have toys for that. So the brand just keeps coming back and you can, you can, the idea is that they're not just trying to hook the current generation. They're also casting forward and say, if we get this generation hooked, that means in 20 years, we can bring these licenses back and sell them again. Right. And what's crazy is there's gotta be some type of book that these toy lines or these toy companies just have that it's like science, right? So like you do this, in 20 years, you collect this and can redistribute this. You do this, do it all over again. And toy companies often hire psychologists to help uh, devise advertising campaigns that will create like greater, like greater masses of consumption of any particular product too. Maybe less so now, but like Mattel was really big on this back in the day as well. So yeah. that as well. So interesting. Yeah. So He-Man though is really interesting um because and this was in the toys that made us as well and i feel like calling back to that that show is like important just because that's the thing that people might know and i never want to claim that this knowledge is like solely something that i've discovered it's this is all stuff that's in the ether and out in the world so there's this rumor that mattel had a licensing agreement to make conan the barbarian figures for the conan movie in 82 and then that movie was way too violent and way too like full of like nudity and topless women and you know all of that kind of stuff and Mattel was like well I don't know if we should do this so this is a rumor and that rumor is is that is that Mattel actually had the license for Conan they were producing figures that looked very much like the He-Man figures and then the Conan people said you no longer like or Mattel said we're not going to produce these because we don't want to we don't want to produce licensed toys around such like an adult property because it's yeah. for kids um, and then the idea here is that he was He-Man was then rejigged. Uh, his proportions were changed slightly. 
um, in like concept drawings and then the figure was made and, and he is as he is, right? So what are the similarities? Conan is a hyper-masculine male vis-a-vis -vis Arnold Schwarzenegger in that movie. Obviously Conan has a much long, long, longer and larger history through comic books and the original like 1950s and 60s like pulp novels that lead to the Marvel comic that lead to the movie. Yeah. Um, so some transmedia stuff transforming there over time as well. Um, but the similarities between Conan and He-Man left uh, Conan Properties International, which owned the rights to Conan, taking Mattel to court over He-Man um, and due to the similarities. And you can see this in some of the original concept drawings. He's holding an ax that's similar to some of the ori some original like Conan drawings, like from like, I think, it, is it Franzetto or Boris Vallejo? Um, and other sort of like art in and around Conan. You know, he even had originally, apparently in the original He-Man drawing, the helmet with the horns, which is like a real signifier of Conan. Yeah. Um, and then that just got altered and altered and he became, He-Man became fairer skinned and they gave him blonde hair. And they did all of that kind of work that I've talked about before with other knockoff toys, which is to say, we are going to copy a thing but we are going to alter it in enough ways that make it legally distinct that we are fine, right? So it's that legal distinction, like where, where the line with a character is. Like, have they done enough work that this is legally distinct and different enough and doesn't infringe upon any of the sort of like, like iconography or characters or universe world of Conan, for example. And so one of the other ways that they do that is they root, He-Man is a barbarian, but he's in this kind of weird hybrid world that's like part Conan, part Star Wars. You know, it's it's sword and sorcery and fantasy, but it's also like batshit crazy science fiction. Yeah. With like these weird vehicles and laser guns and robots. And it's like, it's like all of that cultural stuff gets thrown in the pot and just turned into this like this big manly stew that becomes the masters of the universe. I mean, of course, there are female characters and they got figures and stuff as well. And like, you know, we can talk about that. But uh, this is another one of those instances where like He-Man is ultimately like kind of inspired by um, um, uh, 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 Conan. And to show you, I just wanted to show you, I'm just going to scroll through here. Here we go. So speaking of Masters of the Universe Revelation, uh, spoiler warning, everybody, in Prince Adam dies. What? In like the first episode and he goes to <laughs> and he goes to this place called Preternia which is like heaven for people in Eternia. Yeah. Um you know and there there are all these kind of crazy nods that like Kevin Smith and all the writers sort of included as easter eggs to the toy line and the history of He-Man uh for example the Wonderbread He-Man who is this guy here named Wondar but look at this guy right here. Pure energy. This is it looks like Conan right behind him. And that's based on original concept art for He-Man. Weird. Just, just, you know, just to be clear there. And then here is a character from season two who is coming. This is also a spoiler. Um, this is Savage He-Man. He comes with a big beaten battle axe. He's wearing a loincloth and none of the other accoutrements that signify that he's He-Man, like the weird big chest harness and, and all of that stuff. This is blonde Conan yeah right? like this is blonde conan like you know the only reason i think that 
they could get away with doing this now is because they've established the He-Man brand so much is that they can just say it's a permutation of their own brands. Like he's still got the cropped bangs, his hair's just a bit longer. Yeah. You know, he's also he's Tarzan, he's um Kazar from the Savage Land from the Marvel comics. Like there's all these sort of similarities, but like clearly the Conan stuff is still there, right? Like clearly it's still there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and so that's one of the interesting things I find about Revelations is how they're playing with sort of this the history and story of the brand and including that in the animation in this really interesting way. I think it's a little too heavy on the Easter eggs and I get kind of tired of that kind of fan servicey stuff. But at the same time, they're doing something here that I think is really kind of fun and cheeky by like just kind of slipping Conan in as a background character and going, well, I think it's really, but I mean, you know, so the, the story of He-Man as a license is interesting as well because um, Mattel basically gives up on He-Man like not that long ago and the license belonged to Super 7. And then when Mattel starts realizing, oh wait, Super 7's doing really well with their classics line or whatever, like Super 7, like they take the license back from Super 7. Super 7 can't make Motu characters anymore because Mattel's producing them again, releases this new cartoon, you know, is releasing what they now call the Masters of the Universe Origins line, which is like a 5.5 inch, like ultra articulated version of the figures, which is what Super 7 was doing before they like sort yep. of took the license back. Like Mattel is kind of like, you know, has, has a history of sort of like, I, I think something that is sort of unethical business practices, not something that I brought up when we were like in awe of the beautifully decorated Mattel corporate headquarters lobby where we, where we were on yeah. Thursday morning. We're like, Hmm, what do you think about it? I love it. Dude, I'm just a receptionist. What the fuck are you talking about? Um, <laughs> Um, but so, yeah. And so like, you know, this is one example of how He-Man like sort of copied, I copied or was inspired by, you know, um, ideas sort of outside of Mattel, but part of the development of the toy line too, brings up something really interesting in terms of creative reuse of pre, we, we would call this a redeco and I'll get into sort of more in-depth versions of that in a little bit. But it's really significant. So I talked about Big Jim, right? We keep talking about the snake eating its own tail here. So let me find, uh, here's another, here's another sort of like. Pure energy. So the picture we're looking at is the exact same like structure, bone structure, muscle structure. And they're both posed the same way. The background is different yeah. and the head is different. Yeah, this is a 1977 issue cover of an issue of the Savage Sword of Conan with John Buscema and Alfredo Alcala versus an unknown artist who did the cover of the U 1986 Masters of the Universe Annual in the UK. Um, this is what the the fellas at Cartoonist Kayfabe, the best YouTube channel about comic books uh, and cartooning history, period, the end. This is what they would call a swipe. It's this great. Is this is basically somebody like, traced the figure altered the face altered like the things they altered the things that make conan conan and made them he-man and then draw a new background it's a direct swipe like so yeah. again yeah so obviously that connection has always been made in this really interesting way okay so so big jim one of the in the 70s right so i'm talking about he-man but i'm talking about J big jim like pretty much most of you who are He-Man collectors already know this story, and I'm sorry for repeating myself, 
but some people might not know that Big Jim had this tiger toy, non-posable, that was like part of an adventure set. And so when they were working on developing He-Man, they were like, He-Man needs something to ride. He needs a horse. And eventually he gets a robot horse named Stridor. But they were like, well, what can we do because we're blowing our budget on development? What can we do based on what we already have? And how can we do um, something with what we have? And so the big Jim Tiger. Pure energy. It's Battle Cat repainted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is, to my knowledge, one of the first really explicit examples of what we would call like mold reuse, like of a, of a character from like one toy line to another. Right? Like, it's obvious if you look at the He-Man toy line itself that many of the characters share the same parts and they're just cast in different colors. Um, and then they just swap heads out and stuff like that. Like the chest, yeah. the head, the feet, whatever. There's like a combination of like, you know, like five or six different sort of sets of like arms, legs, torsos. And then of course the character heads are the, where they spend the time developing new characters, but they can reuse old molds. Yeah. So this is another way in which sort of toy companies take advantage of copying ultimately themselves by using, because the most expensive, if any, anyone who, who, who pays attention, who's a, a collector or fan now is that toy companies are really transparent about like, particularly Brian Flynn with super seven. Anytime that guy talks about, the manufacturing process i find it fascinating that he's like just laying it all on the table so people understand mostly to shut up like entitled fans who are like where's my new ultimates figure that was supposed to be here last month yeah and it's like you know but like also also like i think we're, we're getting a real education in the behind the scenes stuff from the people who are doing this which i really really appreciate so here is an example of like a redeco of a previous mold so you just injection mold them now in green plastic and you give him yellow stripes. And then the other thing you develop is you develop the saddle and the mask, which costs significantly less than having to redevelop to develop a whole new toy. Yeah. Let's develop a few add-ons. And then ultimately He-Man's mount is not a horse, but you know, a green tiger um, that he can ride. And then of course, Panthor, who is Skeletor's equivalent, same mold, they just flock him in purple felt. Same, right? Like same thing. Yeah. And um, by the way, when you find a one of those like felt figures now, they look so gross. Uh, yeah, they man. do not stand the test of time. They do not. They do not. Yeah. yeah. If if you played with them and took them out of the package at all, that like that it was over so quickly. Yeah. And so so you know, and we see this time and again, and and now with like sort of companies that are oriented more towards adult collectors, right? You see Super 7 does this to interesting and great effect with colorways of, for example, the Universal Monsters, who they just devise sort of new and interesting and innovative sort of packaging and and just like recast, like just get new, col like new colors of plastics and injection molding these characters so that they continue to use the tooling in those molds because the most expensive part of the manufacturing process is having the molds for these things made in the first place. Yeah. Right. So, so it's a way for a company to continue to get greater value out of the, the various molds that have already been tooled that are being used to manufacture these toys offshore. Hasbro does this with their Star Wars and their Marvel Legends lines where bits and pieces are taken from different molds for different figures. And like, 
since most of the, the digital de design is done digitally now, they know what molds they have based on each part. And they, I'm assuming that they have a parts library that's digital that they can start using to plug in and say, this is how we can make this guy. This yeah. is how we can make this guy, right? Um, so this kind of thing is like real, e even more common practice uh, than it used to be. Like this was, you know, when they did this with like the big gym cat, this is sort of like an early example of this kind of reuse within a company where they go back and go, we have this thing that we can use rather than just straight up like a reissue or something, which also happens, right? Yeah. But sort of the history of the colorway, I think is rooted in that, that creative sort of reuse um, at least across different toy lines, like has its origins here, I think. And there are probably other stories of this that I'm simply like not aware of or that I'm forgetting as we're telling, as we're talking about this. So that's a really interesting moment for me as well in terms of corporate copying. Um, it's that which is leaning on its own sort of sets of assets that they already own so they can like squeeze more value out, um, you know, and how popular did Battle Cat become? Like, yeah, I never hear about popular. the other tiger from Big Jim, but I always hear about the Battle Cat. Yeah, nobody talks about the Big Jim tiger. Yeah. And so, um, you know, to continue this story, let me just show you. Here we go. So this is an interesting story as well. Um, and all my credit, all credit to a colleague and a friend of mine named Calervo Sinervo, who wrote his dissertation on Batman in the transmedia ecology of Batman almost exclusively. Uh, and there's a bit of a chapter in there where he talks about this stuff. And, and he and I have talked about this because I sort of like pointed him in some direction. So um, in 1980, I guess, 889, when Batman Return comes out, I guess, no, that was 91, sorry, 91, Batman Returns. Yeah. Kenner makes um, this Batcave Command Center playset. Pure energy. And you can see it's got a Wayne Manor component. It's got like a cable to drive your Batmobile through. And then it's got your kind of bat KV computer, like place to put for Batman to change into his costume, the vault and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then if we go like this, I can show you the Wayne Manor Batcave compound from Batman Forever, the next Batman movie in that franchise, which is <laughs> it's the, the same exact thing. Same playset, pure energy, cast in different colors. So here is an example of a playset that gets a colorway. Uh, yeah. Not to be outdone, here is the Batcave Command Center from the Batman <laughs> animated series. Same, same playset, new Three colors. Times. Pure energy. Three. Yeah, so you can tell it's really interesting because it's like, oh, the windows there are white in the, like in Wayne Manor, and it's a dark gray. Yeah. And the original one. They are all the same color in this sort of tan, like sandstone. Um, and then in the animated series, it's a light gray with sort of yellow or tan windows. And I'm not, there's a better picture of it. And I'm not done, man. There's one more. Oh, no, I don't have it. Um, but there is also a Batman and Robin live action movie one. And that place I got reproduced again. And what's really interesting in this case is that Kenner was owned by Tonka in 1991, right? Uh -huh. And that license, I believe, went over to another toy company to produce stuff. Maybe it was Mattel. I think it went to Mattel. And what's really interesting about that is that the Batcave gets reproduced, which means that Mattel bought the molds from the other company that owned Kenner yeah. to keep making the same toy. So 
there is also this thing that happens where like molds are acquired by different companies when they get the license, they spend the money to buy those molds, probably because it's cheaper than actually developing a new product. They're just like, fuck it, let's just do a colorway. Yeah. You know? um, Which I want, I wish they would have used the same kid on every one of the boxes, just photoshopped yeah. him in somehow. That would have been yeah. priceless. Yeah, that would have been amazing. It's hard to see. It's hard to see his face. There's okay. So there's his face. He's a little. He's a little brunette guy, kid. Let's see. Oh no, different kid. Yep. They. It's. But what's interesting is that. Oh, that one looks sim. I can't see that one that well, but that one looks similar from where I'm at. Oh no, different kid. Well, I'm looking at the photos of the playset itself, and I think it's the same playset, and they just photoshopped in a different Batmobile. And different but, figures. But I, so in the one that you're currently looking at, Batman Forever, I yeah. had that Batmobile. And if you go back to the other one, I had uh, one before that one. Oh, the uh, the Batman, uh, the, the Batman Returns one? This I one? had that playset because I remember the turn door. So I had yeah. two different things, though they still work together. So this is this is clearly a different photograph because it's a slightly different angle, but it looks oh, like yeah. the same photograph on those other boxes. And they've just put a different kid in it because look here, that kid is actually holding on to the playset and touching it. Oh, so is that kid. But they just like they just went back and they looked at the photo and they said, We're just gonna shoot the same thing and just put a new kid in the picture with the new Batman toys. Uh, by the way, Chicken Burger Disco, I have an idea based off of how they do things that we need to do our packaging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to do a packaging and a collab, and then just put someone else's face on it. Just like it's a new package. It's a new package. There you yeah. go. And I mean, you know, we like. I'll get to that again in a little bit. Um, I'm, you know, we're most of the way through what I wanted to talk about. But this redeco thing is also interesting, and this is where this like weird thing that I just put up on the screen is. I this it. is the Star Trek helmet. Pure energy. Uh, by Rem, I believe it's Remco, and it's this weird space helmet with a siren on it, and it came with a sticker where you could either put Kirk on it or Spock on it with a Starfleet logo on the on the sides of the visor. Everybody knows when I say Spock helmet, most collectors would know what I'm talking about, and a 1701 on the side of the helmet, which is the the call number of the Enterprise 1701 NCC 1701. And if I remember so, correctly, this didn't exist in the show, correct? Oh, none of, yeah, none of this, yeah, this stuff existed in the show. And I'll show you another example of this. So this is an example of what happens when a company acquires a license and they have a bunch of merch and they want to just keep manufacturing that stuff because maybe it didn't do as well as they wanted to. This is where Brian, Brian Heiler in Rack Toys highlights this. This is what we would call sticker or label slapping, right? So a sticker slap is basically when you take an, a product as generic as this weird fucking space helmet, and you put new stickers on it to rebrand it as a licensed product that has nothing to do with that original line. There's another example here. So this is the Remco Hamilton helmet. Pure energy. I kind of like that helmet. Yeah, it's fantastic. Are those findable? Yeah, they're pretty expensive though. Okay. But so Remco Toys, right? Another one of those manufacturers that made like knockoff He-Man figures, for example, like the Warlord figures and stuff, um, which is kind of not technically a knockoff because Warlord was another IP that was around, but it's like Warlord is kind of DC Comics, like 
knockoff He-Man character. A little okay. A little bit. So Remco is kind of known for this, and it's known for this, this kind of like sticker or label slapping in and around Star Trek toys because there was this line called Hamilton's Invaders. And what it was, it was, it was like kind of a, like a plastic army men toy line that had tanks and army men and this kind of stuff. Um, and they were all fighting giant bugs, which were just rubber like insect toys. And so even the tanks and the other vehicles from the Hamilton's Invaders line got sticker slapped with Star Trek like stuff. So yeah. I'm just showing you the helmets, but there's a whole line of toys that became Star Trek toys when they were something else by Remco. So this is the Hamilton Hamilton Invaders helmet, right? Which kind of makes sense. It's in a line where like you're fighting like giant bugs. So maybe you want your soldiers to like wear helmets that look like giant bugs. I don't know. I don't know the logic behind the design of this, but here's the Star Trek Astro. <laughs> Looks great. More it's bug same, stuff. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's like, yeah, but it's again, reuse of those of those molds and those tools and then just like literally slapping a star trek sticker on it and putting it in a new box which is like the cost of that is like infinitesimal compared to developing a new toy line right yeah so like you get the license and you're like all right i got the license to make some star trek shit what do i have that's vaguely sci-fi that could like line up that kids might think you know is related to star trek because we're telling them it's star trek uh this is another example of that. So this is like the sticker slapping redeco. So we've covered the kind of like, you know, colorways, redecos, and sticker slapping that is also a very, very common practice even today. Although perhaps maybe not as like weird and like like strangely exploited as as this stuff would have been. You know? Yeah. This is clearly the exploitation of the Star Trek license in a way that like I mean, all licenses are a kind of exploitation, leaning on the, the sort of like social and cultural capital of an intellectual property in order to sell your toys. Like that's, that's part of the game here. But this is a particular sort of interesting example of that. And so I have two more stories that I'd like to tell. One returns us to this story between this rivalry between Mattel and, um, and uh, Hasbro. And then one is the, the one I want to end on because I think it, there's some interesting ramifications for us contemporarily. I'm I know in that it. Is, okay, so, so the 1980s, yeah. you know, Cyndi Lauper was really big. The sort of new, new wave yeah. punk music is kind of a thing. And so Hasbro has this idea like with this sort of glam, new wave kind of aesthetic that's coming out in the 80s, sort of post Cyndi Lauper, to make a doll line that is Gem and the Holograms. Okay. Again, interesting story. Some of it's rumor and conjecture. Nobody really knows for sure. The rumor is, is that somebody at Mattel got wind that Barbie was going to enter the fashion doll market with these new wave fashion dolls that were all individual members of this band, right? That already had sort of the transmedia machine behind it with the Marvel Productions cartoon that was aired as part of the Marvel Adventure Hour with like dino riders and stuff, Yeah, right? And that like, so the model here is, okay, so these are characters who play music. So every figure comes with like some kind of fashion, fashion outfit, a musical instrument, or in the case of Jem, a microphone, cause she's the lead singer and a cassette tape of music by the band, like a song or two on a small cassette tape. 
Okay. Um, you know, one of the key play features for Jem was that Jem, her earrings lit up, right? Because that was part of the mythology because like they're being altered by a, a sentient AI, like using yeah. holographic technology, all that crap. Fine. Pure energy. So, so this was supposed to come out. I can't remember the years on this. Like, so just think that this is, this is happening in like the eighties at some point. And I can look this up right now, but I, I mean, for the, the case of our story, you're going to, something interesting happens. Hasbro's developing this and yet somehow mere months before the gem dolls make it to market after the cartoon has already aired, all of a sudden Mattel hits the market with Wait. Barbie and the Barbie and the Rocker. Oh no. <laughs> and they so, look so similar. Yeah. And these are the original outfits that came with Barbie and the Rockers. Not only do they look similar, it is it is a band of four young women yep. led by a white girl, a white blonde girl, where the other ethnicities of the other characters match up with the ethnicities of the other characters in Gemini Holland. Holy jeez. And they come with fashion accessories. They come with musical instruments. And they come with cassette tapes of music from Barbie and the Rockers. Yeah. Um, again, this was, this was one that was never settled in court. But Barbie and the Rockers pretty much killed Gem and the Holograms because of the brand identification that Barbie already had. Is there a reason and they didn't go to court? I'm not sure. Honestly, I don't know enough information about the story, but this is one that I'm, I've just recently been sort of looking at. Uh -huh. um, I would say because Barbie is already a character, and I think that Hasbro would be in, in hot water. Like, like the idea of a countersuit is a real possibility there because they're like, well, you're copying Barbie and you're just making a fashion, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. That like a countersuit was like very, very possible, I think. Um, but what's really interesting to me about, about this particular story is that the difference between Jem and Barbie is that Jem is, I think, slightly either sl taller. Yeah, the Jem dolls are bigger. Okay. Um, and so because Hasbro wanted it to be sort of unique from Barbie, because clearly you, if you're making a doll like that, you were already aware of the sort of legacy and market impact that Barbie has, and you're trying to break in and slice off some of that market. Yeah. The, the smart thing would have been is to make them the same scale. Okay. Right? Because then the outfits and everything would be interchangeable. And they didn't do that. And that's sort of one of the reasons why, like, Barbie and the Rockers is said to have killed Jem is because ultimately Jem wasn't compatible with Barbie, which is did, a really interesting question. Yeah. Did Jem even make it to the shelves? Mm hmm Okay. So it made Oh, yeah. It. it just, I mean, it just didn't last very long, right? Yeah. It just didn't do as well. I mean, Jem had vehicles and play sets actually i used to have i found at a thrift store in montreal the the gem rock and roadster which was like this vintage looking sort of like rolls royce silver ghost kind of car that was like day glow pink orange and green weird and it had a radio am radio in the trunk of the car that could play music while they were like the back end of the car was actually an am radio with a speaker built into the toy um you know, and then so there's different play sets and like that kind of thing that came out. And then Barbie and the Rockers was doing the same kind of thing. But again, Barbie's brand recognition pretty much like blew it out of the water. I think that even if kids were into gem, I bet you 20 bucks it's the same situation where they're like, I want these gem and the hologram dolls. They're these new wave, 
like so like suddenly Mattel gets to bank on also on a misunderstanding between Gem is sort of a cartoon media property vis-a-vis parents and the buying power that parents and grandparents have for children, right? Because children aren't going out there and buying these things themselves. Yeah. Like the parents are. So that, that's the other thing. So again, is there truth to these rumors that someone at Mattel got the inside track of what was being developed at Hasbro? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, but it seems to me that like, this is a very similar situation to what I was talking about with uh, last week at the beginning of a Star Wars episode with like the fact that Armageddon and Deep Impact come out in movie theaters in the same year. Yeah. I, you know what I mean? Like that mm, somebody got wind that somebody's doing something in this space. We should do that too because this that will probably be a hit and then we can get the overflow market from that. Um, and so like who was sort of copying who here is an interesting debate because Jem's a fashion doll that's the Barbie model. Hasbro would copy that before with G.I. Joe. So if they make Barbie and the Rockers, is that just desserts? Like, there's all these interesting yeah. questions that come up, right? Like, you're, but they're both right. They're both wrong. Who knows? Um, but really, really fascinating to me. And so one last corporate tale of, like, corporate kind of legally stuff, and then I want to close with something that relates directly to us. And so you, my friend, know about, I think, what I'm going to talk about, because I've talked about how excited I was to get to talk about these guys. Oh, my gosh. Let me describe them. Okay. Here we go. Here so we go. My what favorite, are you looking at? Yeah, my favorite thing is this. So growing up, there was a, a scary world that it was there, and the sun would scream and laugh, and there was these fat aliens with weird faces and TVs in their stomachs, and they had weird things and antennas. Teletubbies, yes, yes, yes. So Scott and I have been talking for a long time about his love for Teletubbies, <laughs> and Walmart gets in trouble for producing Bubbly Chubbies, which is a knockoff. It's just... Uh, them it's a teletubby no antenna no tv okay so so i need to (laughs) yeah so let me let me lay out this story for you yeah i love this so so the year is 1999 and those weird colorful alien creatures who live in this utopia where the sun is also a baby's face which is the scariest part of the show and they live with a sentient vacuum cleaner friend whose name I can't remember if he had a name at all. Snippy um, or something weird, yeah. Yeah, so so Ragdoll Productions Limited is the company that creates and owns Teletubbies, right? Um, and they had a North American licensing agent that they used called the Itsy Bitsy Entertainment Company, um, which I believe is just a company that the Ragdoll goes to say, license this shit with American companies. Um, I actually, I'm actually so into Teletubbies to a certain extent that one time while thrifting in Montreal, I found old VHS cassette tapes from Rag, Ragdoll that were sent to broadcasters for, to try to sell the show to broadcasters. Oh, I've yeah. I've got a, I've got a couple of those tapes, right? Like the yeah. old, like, we'll send you these tapes, maybe you'll buy our show. That's frameable. So, so Walmart did not produce the Bubbly Chubbies. Oh, that, that's it. the first thing. And that's important. That's really important. The company that produced Bubbly Chubbies uh, was a company called Way Out Toys. That was the company that was on the um, that was on the package. But there was a parent company to Way Out Toys, and I'm just trying to find the name here. If I don't find it, we'll just move on. 
but it was way out toys yeah i've got a couple of articles here the card pack um, really isn't great uh yeah i mean well it's a knockoff and I'll, I'll talk about the the whole thing here so um i'm just looking for the company right okay so soma international limited which is the parent company of way out toys which is a knockoff toy company who's made other knockoffs um so the toy the significant thing about this particular lawsuit is interesting so normally all of the lawsuit stuff that i've talked about all that sort of legal butting heads that's sort of standard fare in all sort of corporate practices right like apple versus samsung and there was a patent lawsuit literally over like a, a gestural years ago, the way that you would swipe your finger across the screen, like just a quick left swipe or right swipe. Apple had a patent for the technology that used that. And there was a seven year lawsuit with Samsung. So companies litigating against other companies because products are similar is nothing new and is ongoing and is constant. And that's worth, that's worth noting. Manufacturers suing manufacturers this is the difference with this lawsuit is that Ragdoll and Itsy Bitsy did not pursue litigation against Soma, the company that made them. They went after Walmart for distributing them. Weird. That's a huge difference. And so in one of the articles, um, Walmart executives during during the whole like what do you call that when you're sitting uh disp you depose somebody deposition, deposition. I was gonna say disposition <laughs> yeah so during a deposition um uh there was this moment where like Walmart uh when entering into this agreement with Soma for the bubbly chubbies for their Easter season for this one year they required Soma's legal counsel in Pittsburgh, even though they have the law firm that said this, to provide a legal uh, to provide a legal opinion about potential copyright infringement. And the lawyers from Soma determined there was no infringement. Um, and they and they said and you know and the Walmart execs were like, we take these issues seriously, and we would never knowingly infringe upon our copyright on copyright or trademark laws. So so Walmart is saying we relied on the legal expertise of the the legal counsel of this toy company and that legal counsel said you are safe because they are in that territory that knockoff territory of being legally distinct enough from uh from teletubbies that you can sell them and so walmart purchased the bubbly chubbies as a one-time purpose this is super interesting yeah intended to serve as basket stuffers for easter so they were sold at a cheap rate and they were meant to sort of be put in those like pre-made Easter baskets that they would sell. And then there was so much overstock that they sold them on store shelves. Um, I don't know the outcome of this lawsuit uh, and I'm still working on trying to find that legal information, but basically I'm pretty sure Walmart lost, which is why like bubbly chubbies are kind of hard to find now um, particularly packaged ones, right? Because they were only ever sold at Walmart only in this particular period of time in the 90s and then, and then they're gone. Yeah. Um, Pure energy. But so <laughs> I actually had another photo that I wanted to show you of another bubbly chubby because it wasn't just these. So the thing that makes them different if we were to describe them is they look like Teletubbies, but instead of the weird shapes on their heads, they have nothing sticking out the top of their heads. 
They have something that look kind of like headphones on their side. And then they have clean round bellies instead of having TVs in them. I mean, you're going to post the picture anyway. So yeah. And um, the under like copyright law, what's tough is where you're now, what it seems is like you're now in the domain of inspiration, right? Yeah. Or, or a knockoff that is legally distinct enough that, um, that you know there's no way that they could actually be like held legal legally accountable it's not necessarily inspiration it's like how can we get away with like you know like corporations often do this how can we get away with like copying this thing but making it legally distinct enough that like we're we're safe from lawsuits like that's a that's a that's actually a determining factor in how how some products are developed and i just wanted to show you this photo of the other versions of the bubbly chubbies where instead of a TV in their belly, there's a little colored button that makes their eyes glow red and makes them look like weird demon babies. Um, I'm kind of into that. Yeah, it I'm looks kind of so good. Of, I'm now looking for one of these for my collection because I do have the PVC. I have a package of PVC bubbly chubbies, as you know. Yeah. When I got them, I got very excited and I sent you a photo. Yeah. So, but this is the key distinction that I think everybody should take away from this moment and how this relates to us as bootleg toy makers, right? Like we could get a cease and desist order from somebody that says you made a thing that looks like our thing and so stop it. And it's kind of a threat, you know, that may or may not have legs depending on on what it is. But that's going, that is a manuf- a maker going to a maker and saying, stop it, you're copying us. In the same way that like, you know, the maker of Conan went to the maker of He-Man and said, you know, these things are just whatever, right? Like those kinds of lawsuits, like corporation, manufacturer, or holder of IP versus manufacturer or holder of IP. That's the, that's the most common thing that happened. This lawsuit sets a different legal precedent, which says if you are a retailer who is knowingly distributing goods that are knockoffs or bootlegs, you can be held legally accountable for distributing them. And they don't even have to go after the manufacturer because they can go to the person distributing them because they're knowingly distributing goods that are copywritten elsewhere. And so this brings us this brings us to that legal distinct question around transformation and fair use in art that, for example, DKE Toys uses, where he says you can't use the Star Wars logo, right? Because yeah. this lawsuit could make Dove if it wasn't if these weren't limited run works of art and they looked more like direct copies and bootlegs, that could put Dove on the line for copyright infringement because he's distributing the work. So there are, there are reasons why we have to sort of follow particular guidelines in order to avoid that kind of, that kind of like trouble or that kind of issue. And that's like, that's, that's really important. It's like distributing, it's the same thing where it used to be like the people who would get nailed for copyright infringement for illegally pirating a movie were the people who pirated the movie. Now, yeah. it's, the, now it's the distributors and the consumers and all of that is born out of things like the digital, the, the, the Copyright Extension Act, which I talked about um, around the same time as the Copyright Extension Act with Mickey Mouse, there was the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which says that if a consumer breaks the digital locks on something to copy something, they can be held liable. So this, this opens a can of worms for distributors to be, um, to be vulnerable to litigation for knowingly distributing these kinds of toys. Oh, uh, yeah, and you know, and copyright and copy copyright and copywritten material in general. 
Yeah. And this is the kind of legal precedent that's set with this lawsuit that's really kind of dangerous and like unprecedented, literally unprecedented until this moment. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, yeah, it's really freaky. I mean, what started is this, this interest in these weird knockoff Teletubbies, right? Leads me down this rabbit hole that says, oh, that, that is a significant shift in the, where the responsibility for, for, for like unlicensed material goes. Yeah. Like that means that like retailers have to check with their lawyers to examine like knockoffs and bootlegs. And perhaps the reason we see less of them in the retail market in the 20th century is precisely like at least a big retailers is precisely the reason that we're talking about right now, which is, which is like t- the Teletubby, the ragdoll and itsy bitsy lawsuit vis-a-vis Teletubbies and Bubbly Chubbies. Yeah. I think that it's crazy they've just shifted blame is what's happening it feels like they're just shifting blames to whoever and they're just going after everyone also as a secondary like rabbit hole trail thing what a missed opportunity you could have called it the bubbly chubblies and they just missed it so much and i think i'm just interested in how walmart got roped into selling knockoff toys that seems like such a weird game to get into for such a big company. Yeah, in, because what what other reason would there be is because they could get them cheap and they could sell them for a, a profit. Yeah. Right? Like, um, but yeah, goddamn it, keeping this image of these like little glow, red glowing eyed like demon Teletubbies is just unsettling. Um, but yeah, like ultimately, why would they do that? Because they entered into an agreement with a company clearly they were doing other work with, right? Yep. Probably other kinds of knockoffs in and around that era. Like, you know, there was a time when like dollar stores and even Walmart sold like Chap May, like kind of like knockoff figures and that kind of thing. And now most of the time when you see Chap May, which is another company that does kind of knockoffy work, most of it is their soldier force or whatever that's a Toys R Us and the Discovery Channel toys. So yeah. Chap May is another company that's sort of a knockoff company in the same way that Lanyard, Lanyard was with the the core, which was the knockoff of the GI Joe line. Um, you know, those things were sold at retail as well. But since then, right, since this particular era, I would argue that you haven't seen that stuff on major retail store shelves, specifically because of the liability that they have as distribution companies too, right? Like that's, that's it. Like if you are making this shit available to consumers, you, you, are, you can be held accountable, um, which changes everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and then finally, I wanted to talk about sort of tales of corporate practice, uh, copying practices that we're seeing in contemporary culture that I think have a lot to do with those of us who are interested in the contemporary sort of like bootleg toy scene. And that is companies taking ultimately what I think are the aesthetics and ideas from the community and repackaging them as licensed products. And so I want to start with pure energy. Here we go. This is for the love of old toys, FT Loot. Yep. Um, this is his Wrestlers of the Universe line. Um, and it, you can see here, there's a Skeletor Ultimate Warrior mashup, and there is a Macho Man-at-Arms figure. Yep. Right? Um, I'm not sure if you're aware. So this is, to my knowledge, one of the, I mean, I'm sure there are other people who have done this kind of work mashing up like He-Man and WWF. 
But so this is something that comes from sort of the customizer bootleg community, this kind of idea, like mashups are nothing new, even in licensed toys, like there were Star Trek Ninja Turtles and Ghostbuster Ninja Turtles and all this kind of stuff. Universal Monster Ninja Turtles. Like, yeah. You know, so the kind of mashup aesthetic has been around for like 20 odd years in the toy space. But seeing these, I saw these before I, I saw what I was going to show you next. So the wrestlers of the universe line precedes. So here is here is the Macho Man at Arms. And here is the Macho Man Randy Savage as a He-Man Masters of the Universe mashup toy by Mattel. And this is a contemporary toy, right? Mattel has been doing this work. The Masters of the WW Universe, which are WWF characters mashed up with He-Man characters. And so there's this, you know, to say that Mattel is doing this without the knowledge of that other work, that's within the realm of possibility. But I also think that because toy companies are so fan facing and so public facing in ways that they've never been before, that they're paying attention to what the bootleg communities are doing. And I think this is an example of like those kind of ideas articulating themselves back into licensed figures. So you're using the aesthetics of, of the bootleg toy community to produce licensed authorized mashup versions of these characters in this particular way to continue to sell to both wrestling and He-Man fans in the same way that For the Love of Old Toys would have been drawing on those same fans and enthusiasts with their own work independently, right? Wow, yeah. I've always kind of, I've, you know, I keep saying this thing that I think is sort of true that we can understand is that like one of the reasons that more people are coming into bootleg toys as collectors now is because whatever, whatever original vintage line they've collected, they probably have most, if not all of that shit. And where do you go as a collector from that? Yeah. Right. One of the spaces that you can you can step into sort of the reissues and all those kinds of things that companies do, for example, like Star Wars, like Hasbro does, they have their vintage collection line, which is an articulated three and three quarter inch figure on vintage style packaging to tickle your nostalgia. But they also have the retro line, which has been both reissues of original Kenner figures, but also um, the release of new characters such as the Mandalorian figures in that Kenner style. Yeah. In the same way that Super 7's reaction figures are sort of taking that Kenner style and giving collectors something new in that sort of stuff. <clears throat> but in this particular case, I really think that there's something happening here where these companies are also kind of like seeing what the members of the bootleg community are doing and are sort of playing around with the ideas of that space. And, and finally, I think that it's worth noting that I think one of the best examples of this is Hasbro or Kenner, as the branding is on these figures, the retro line prototype action figures that they're doing. Yeah, um, those are crazy. You know, there is this there is this thing. I've gotten into discussions with people about this in the community and say, well, you know, on the one hand, yes, these look like they are copying. Um, they are copying sort of the aesthetics of, of the bootleg community, right? The people like, like of those people who do multiple like, like colorways of different vintage figures. And that's a very big component of the community. Um, uh, and I think that that is more true than the other, the other argument, which is to say, well, in the era in which these were made, test shots were often made using whatever plastics were still in the injection molding machines and therefore 
you would end up with figures that look like this, particularly if you do that thing where you remove the back metal from like a Death Star droid or a C-3PO, there's a very good chance that the plastic limbs, like the plastic that was used is a varying color because that's how they produce those figures, right? But I mean, you know, Hasbro is leaning pretty hard into this. So there's the Darth Vader one, there's the Boba Fett one, and then most recently there's the Stormtrooper one. Um, and these look and feel like bootlegs, but they're not bootlegs because they're licensed goods by a toy manufacturer. They are, yeah. simply, they are simply adopting the kind of aesthetic and material sort of practices of the bootleg community to sell licensed toys to people who may not buy bootlegs because they view them as inauthentic. That's a really big part of this, right? Like a lot of people view unlicensed goods as being inauthentic and the licensed goods as being the only, the only real versions of these things to collect. There is a great deal of collectors in the world who I would probably say have like, who scramble on Hasbro Pulse to get their hands on this, but would never even look twice at something that was made out of resin of the same colors from someone at like a designer con or something. Yeah. Um, and that I think is really interesting. And the snake is eating its own tail in this other way. Um, which I kind of mentioned with culture, a little bit of the culture jamming stuff in that the 1960s, there was a group of artists who like are sort of like early versions of culture jammers from France. They called themselves the situationists and they had a practice that they called the determent which, or the reversal, which was using the icons and iconography of corporate culture against itself in artwork in the way that Mickey and the Air Pirates did in the Disney episode, for example. They have another term called recuperation, which is when the corporate entities that these artists were taking from to sort of reverse the kind of direction of that commentary, when the corporate entity sees those aesthetics and sees those materials and then use it to pack it, repackage something and sell it, using the, the transgressive aesthetics that the, those very artists were deploying. And I think this is what we're seeing here. Like this is, I can't think of this as any other way, whether it's that He-Man mashup line. And again, that has a different kind of legacy, but with these guys specifically, like I, I, I can't help but feel that there is a real connection between like the history of the bootleg action figure and where we are today. Can you imagine if they released a pink one, how a certain person would like freak out if there was pink in this? Oh my gosh. I hope they right? do now. I hope they yeah. do. George Lucas, if you're listening. Oh, Lucas has it. nothing to do with any of that, no? <laughs> <laughs> right? Like Lucas is just sitting like making like Luke Skywalker wine on his ranch. He doesn't care. He just, yeah. yeah. But anyway, yeah, I thought this was would be a really interesting place to end to say that like, you know, we talked about different sort of corporate strategies, whether it was shutting down people who were doing like unauthorized work um, or trying to shut them down. Or in the case of Star Wars, up until the Disney acquisition, Lucasfilm sort of embracing the fans like vis-a-vis -vis fan filmmaking and saying, no, go tell your own stories. We think this is an important part of the cultural ecology of our property. Yeah. Um, to come all the way back around to start making stuff that looks like bootlegs, I think is fascinating to me. Um, and, you know, obviously these are much slicker, they have foil packages, you know, they're doing all this kind of stuff to sort of dress it up. But if you took this figure out of the package and put it on a table with like, I don't, I don't, I don't know, any particular like bootleg maker who had made 
a similar figure of similar colors, you know, the materials might be slightly different, resin versus injection molding, but you can't help but see those connections. Um, and I'm happy to like, if anyone is listening to this, if they have a, a, like a, another opinion about these, um, I would be happy to hear it. Um, because, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. It seems like it's coming from several places, but I can't help but feel that in an era where like... We interrupt this broadcast of Toys on Top to bring you this. Earth 2 Aliens have landed, Earthling. I want lowbrow art and bootleg toys. Toys, 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 toys. Well, you come to the right place. Earth to Kentucky is a shop for folks who love vintage sci-fi, lowbrow, and art bootleg toys. Toys, toys, toys. They're located over there at 836 Main Street, Covington, Kentucky. Toys, toys, toys. They carry original art, vintage action figures, designer bootleg toys, and toys, 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 and t-shirts. Designed exclusively for their store by some of their favorite artists. Thank you, Earthling. I enjoy Earth to Kentucky. I have all my favorite bootleg art toys. Toys. Hey, look at that over there! It's a spaceship! Yeah. I need to go now. Someone's filming me in my spaceship. Shop now. www.earthtokentucky.com. That's earth2kentucky.com. Or just land your spaceship when they're open. Toy designers from Hasbro are going on YouTube every other week to talk about their new products, that they're not also, on the other hand, that those people aren't taking the time to look to see what fans are seeing or saying and doing out in the world and absorbing some of that um, back. I mean, this is the whole reason why Rise of Skywalker and all the retconning are not right. Yeah, Rise of Skywalker and all the retconning that I talked about last week becomes so problematic because it sounds like that was a story that was written by like a whole bunch of fans just talking about what they wanted to see and then trying to put all of that in there and then just coming out with a movie that makes like no narrative sense. Mm. Um, you know, so like that outward facing, that fan facing sort of behavior, I think also would inevitably lead people to seeing fans who are collecting this kind of work, which would say, oh, we can still make money off of a vintage stormtrooper. All we have to do is like come up with a new package design and just like injection mold them in five random colors and just put them together. Um, yeah. And also acknowledge that there is both a Boba Fett and a Stormtrooper prototype above my head on my wall. Look at you. Yeah, well, because they're kind of interesting and it's part of the dissertation. So, you know, that's my excuse. I'm like, I want that because I want to photograph it for my dissertation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like, that's like the primary, like a primary motivator for why I like, why I purchase things. Even at DesignerCon, like I bought just as a, a way to close this off, if we're talking about the ways that things get copied historically, um, Super 7 in that work that they've done with those sort of retro packages, um, by making two different versions of the creature from the Black Lagoon based on the Azrak Hamway dolls of the 1970s in like the world famous super monsters kind of reproduction boxes, but at three and three quarter inch scale, right? Yeah. So, um, so everyone like the, yeah. So again, like, Part of the premise of this entire series that I started with is that, you know, I wanted to talk about the culture of copying, but also talk about how culture itself is predicated on the act of copying mm -hmm. and how we see this again and again and again and again, whether it's like independent artists doing things and responding, whether it's companies doing things and responding to what other companies are doing in the marketplace, all of this just kind of keeps happening. And these were just like half a dozen stories about those kinds of things.
New from Toys on Tap. Toys on Tap. Next episode. The next episode. It's great. It's amazing. You're going to want to listen to it. It's not right now, though. You're going to have to wait till the next episode to listen to it. Oh, when's that? The next one. Cool. Toys on Tap. Toys on Tap. The next one's going to be good, too. So stay tuned and, and, and listen to that. Toys on Tap. Awesome.